From the grassroots media team at Weave News, this is Interweaving. Welcome to episode 19 of Interweaving. I'm John Collins. A recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change called for urgent action to limit the most devastating effects of our global addiction to fossil fuels. Today, we speak with Dr. John Rosales, a professor at St. Lawrence University and an expert reviewer for the IPCC. We discuss some of his key takeaways from the report, his concerns for the future, and his recommendations for actions we can all be taking to move toward a new, more sustainable form of living. John Rosales, welcome to Interweaving. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, certainly. Thanks for having me. Now, it's our pleasure. Wanted to start by taking a look at the headlines that we're seeing every day. We're seeing stories of fires, floods, unprecedented weather patterns, glaciers melting. We're even seeing warnings about the potential collapse of the Gulf Stream, which would be quite catastrophic. And of course, everything else um, associated with the pandemic. So I know that you've spent a good part of your career studying climate change. How do you make sense of all of this and how do you connect the dots? Good question to start on. I connect the dots, uh, particularly with the climate change impacts you just listed there, with our activities. Uh, We know now with a lot of clarity that all of those things at the beginning, besides COVID, those can be connected back to fossil fuel use. Uh, So it's our lifestyles, it's our transportation, our heating system, our lighting system, and our uh, tendency to cut down force. Uh, Those those are the sources. So it's actually pretty easy for me to connect the dots on the climate change uh, front to humans and our activities. You know, that's what I was trained to do, and that's uh, the way I've been seeing it for, for quite a few decades. I guess some of the really extreme climate change events like uh, circulation system, the currents uh, shutting down or or shifting, that would be extreme. Or let's say if all Greenland or Antarctica were to melt, that would be extreme. Like, whoa, you know, it's possible, but what do I do about it or what can we do about that? You know, that's almost too big to comprehend. So I guess the, the dots are connected also by uncertainty and how we deal with uncertainty. But we know for most of the impacts, like temperatures going up, we we can uh, trace that back to greenhouse gases. And we know how much we're emitting into the atmosphere with more accuracy year to year. Just to follow up here a little bit, we're seeing, obviously, uh, some of these storms in New York City uh, flooding in areas where we might not have expected to see that in the past you know, the current hurricane season and potential impacts on the energy sector, you know, on uh, uh, pipelines and things like that. So when you teach about these things, I'm just curious as to how you how you help students think about the wide implications of those human activities that they may be aware of, but not always connecting. Uh, yeah, I always try to connect it back to our behaviors without... Well, I can't say never, but there have been some times where I say our behaviors, but I usually try to make it general like human behaviors and allow the students some space without being preached at uh, to interpret their own behaviors. 
you know, the, it's not a shaming exercise. Uh, if they want to go down that route, they can. Uh, but no, I'd never uh, back off of tying it back to our behaviors, but also the fossil fuel companies, uh, because they've known their product is faulty for, you know, now 60, 70 years, according to their own reports. I haven't uh, framed it differently, I guess, uh, since I started teaching in that regard, but I do allow some space for students to interpret their own behaviors within that. Uh, and I would suspect that for many people, walking around with your head separated from your body is very hard. And what I mean by that is it's it's really hard to know something and then go home and, you know, just emit more greenhouse gases. So, you, you know, you learn in school that, you know, the planet is warming and all these crazy things are happening. And yet you go home and you idle your car or you set the thermostat up too high in the wintertime. You know, that's what I mean, separating your mind from your body. Your body does one thing, but your mind knows a different thing. Uh, so for me, that's that has always been really hard. And I would suspect for students, too, it's very hard to do that. So I, I expect them to sort of connect the dots to their own lives uh, in that regard. Mm -hmm. What are you hearing from your students these days? Some are shocked, you know, just outright shocked, you know, that the news is, is so bad that the trends are just, they seem almost hopeless at this point. I just had a student today say that uh, she read that another group of 200 scientists are saying that the one and a half degree limit, temperature increase limit that countries of the world are shooting for, you know, through the United Nations. She just read that that's too high. It has to be more like one, one degree warming. And we've already passed that. We're about 1.2 degree warming. Uh, Celsius warming now. So, you know, she was wondering, what what does that mean? Is it hopeless? Uh, we're, we've gone past the limit. What do we do now? So the look on her face was, it's hopeless. Others are like, well, I have some solutions I've been learning about and I want to uh, start employing, you know, changing our energy system, our consumptive behavior, you know, getting involved in forestry work, things like that. Uh, where we can be part of the, that solution. But yeah, we, we've overshot the easy window <laughs> to crawl out of. Now it's very small and we have to wedge our way through it, literally remaking ourselves as we go through that window. We, we have to be shaped differently to get through that, that tiny window that we have left for ourselves. Mm. Let's take a look for a few minutes at the latest report from the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That report came out recently. It was a strongly worded report, much anticipated report, and it confirms that we're already seeing changes that are, and I'm quoting here from the summary of the report, irreversible for centuries to millennia, especially changes in the ocean, ice sheets, and global sea level. I know you were an expert reviewer for this report and also for the previous one. So I was wondering if you could say a bit about the IPCC itself and then the significance of this new report. Uh, yes, I'm an expert reviewer for Working Group 2, which is on the impacts of climate change. The, the report that just came out a few weeks ago is Working Group 1. So these reports now are coming out in three volumes. This report that came out two weeks ago is about 3,900 pages. It is just incredibly, 
big and long, mm-hmm. um, and they're getting bigger and longer uh, because what is known is uh, increasing over time. So the IPCC is all about assessing what is known about climate change. So they'll look at the published peer-reviewed literature, mainly some government reports as well, some NGO reports as well. Uh, They'll look at what has been published over a series of like five or seven years. In the case of this last one, it was seven years. So just over those seven years, to summarize what was published took 3,900 pages. So we know a lot, and there's a lot of of work that has been done. Uh, We're we're not uh, suffering from a lack of information or or knowledge on this. There's been a lot known and uncovered. Certainly, there's uncertainty, uh, but we know more than enough to act. So that's the way that they work. They assess for the last five or seven years, and then they add that to what was published in the previous report. So this is the sixth assessment report that came out. The first one was in 1990, uh, and it it, uh, was the last one they thought they were going to write because uh, they were gearing up for the Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio. Uh, And they thought uh, governments of the world would would read the report and then, you know, develop a strategy to tackle climate change. Kind of (laughs) naive when you think about it now. So they called that one the first assessment report, and then five years later, they had the second, and then five years later, the third. Uh, So what happens, uh, what's happening right now is that this working group, one that just released this report, they're already working through um, an oversight committee picking lead authors for assessment report number seven. Uh, They'll pick those, those lead authors, or maybe even the editors, and then the lead authors, and then they will go about identifying the experts in different fields and ask them to write a part of the chapter. Let's say if it's sea ice loss in the Arctic, they'll identify those people publishing right now, ask them to write up their state of knowledge, and then it goes to the lead authors and they compile it into the chapter. So just by design, that's why it's so long. It's You have all these experts writing their own little parts and then they stitch it together. Uh, but the way this... This report is different than the other ones that I've read or or reviewed is that it's much more forceful. You know, scientists now have, are sounding the alarm bells with this one. It is much more forceful. The language is much clearer and direct. Uh, and they don't cut out the high emissions scenarios like the worst case scenarios uh, that were cut out of the previous reports. So in this one, what really stands out to me is that if we look at the figures, they, it actually can be worse than what they're portraying in the figures uh, because uh, some scientists have found that in this case, this particular thing may even be worse. Yeah, I think it might be interesting to drill down a little bit into the report itself and see if you could highlight for us a couple of the most important data points that jump out to you that really connect with some of the main conclusions that are drawn in the report. Yeah, sure. Uh, One of the very important additions or updates that they did in this report is they ran five new future scenarios of going out to 2100. So these are supercomputers that have been programmed now for 50 years, 40 years. And they used to be pretty simple uh, programs trying to mimic climate patterns, even weather patterns. These are 
essentially the same models that weather forecasters will use as well. And they're incorporating so many more things in the in the biological realm, uh, physical attributes on the planet and so forth. But in the, this latest report, they are also including social action. So different scenarios of the future depending on what we do. And I think that's the intent of this whole report is they're tying it back to humans time and time again. What is it that we're changing right now? What are we responsible for? And what can we do under different scenarios uh, going forward? So that's a major, major change. To the the low emission scenarios, the, the two out of the five, uh, have us going to be carbon negative after 2050. And what that means is that there's no net increase of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That is a radical change for humanity. Just think about that. If we're burning any fossil fuels, we have to somehow capture it and then throw it back into the ground. Uh, but it also means that we can't be burning fossil fuels if we're going to go carbon negative. Uh, much more work will be done on forestry if we achieve you know, what's outlined in that scenario. And maybe even have to consider some geoengineering crazy antics like throwing up sulfur dioxide in the, in the atmosphere or you know, seeding oceans with iron so that they grow more algae. You know, those are the things that we really want to avoid having to do. But the low emission scenarios all have us going carbon negative after 2050. Uh, let me just give you one other example of what, what they have done. They've translated their forecasts into understandable terms. Like, I think most people can comprehend that uh, a 10-year heat wave event. You know, think about the, the hottest period that you've had to live through in the last decade or the last 100 years or the, nobody lives 100 years, but the last 50 years. You know, they take an event like that and then they project it forward under those different scenarios. So if, for example, we get our act together, by the end of the century, uh, we'll have an extreme heat event like the one you've experienced in the last decade. It's three times more probable that that event will, will happen at the end of the century than in the last 10 years of your life mm -hmm. under the low emission scenario. Under the high emission scenario, it's nine times more likely uh, that you will experience a, a heat wave like you've experienced in the last decade. So that's the last decade, but in the last 50 years, that goes up to 39 times. So if you think of the worst heat wave in the last 50 years, it's 39 times more probable at the end of the century under a high emission scenario. So delivering science that way, I think kind of brings more people in. It's like, okay, yeah, I really hated that, that heat wave. What, you're telling me now it's three to nine times more probable? All right, you know, maybe we'll do something about climate change if it's portrayed that way. At least that's the intent here, I think. Right, yeah, it brings it home. So in terms of the range from those low emission scenarios to those high emissions scenarios, how does the report help us understand what those mean? Uh, yeah, they go to great detail defining each uh, scenario, but let me... Uh, just kind of focus on the on the top two. We emit about 40 gigatons. That's 10 to the ninth tons of CO2 per year right now. So we're at, at 40. And if we're going to go with the low emission scenario, that has to get to about minus 15. So that's a, a drop of 55 gigatons 
that we have to manage somehow. But the high emission scenario puts it up to about 130 gigatons. So we go from 40 that we're doing right now to 130 by the end of the century. Uh, and that essentially means that we're going to do a little, but we're probably going to empty the fossil fuel reserves that we have. Uh, the Amazon will continue to, to be cut down and, you know, turned over to agriculture. And we're not going to change too much going forward. So that gives you a sense of the scale of these five scenarios that we're talking about, uh, the, the high emission scenario. You know, we'd be increasing by a factor of three or more. And then the low emission scenario, we'd have to go negative. In other words, zero and then below that. And then everything in between. Yeah, wrapping our heads around what it might mean to go negative is quite a trick to imagine that kind of scenario, at least for me, given the world that I've grown up in. Yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> this just happened literally before I, I came to, to talk to you. Uh, a student of mine uh, blurted out, I'm thinking negative thoughts. I'm thinking negative thoughts. Uh, and what he was talking about is his COVID test. So think negative thoughts also when it comes to climate change. Right. <laughs> yeah, we have to imagine a world where we go negative. Uh, and try to adopt life ways that way. Right. This is not a time for positive thinking. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Interweaving, a podcast of conversation and context from Weave News. Since 2007, Weave News has been investigating underreported stories, highlighting alternative perspectives, and promoting grassroots media making and critical media literacy. If you're interested in joining us as a content contributor, visit weavenews.org slash submissions. Now, back to more into weaving. I mean, in that light, I, I have to ask this, even though it, it, it may seem like an extreme question, but uh, we're certainly beginning to see discussion of these issues more explicitly. Should we be preparing for the collapse of our current civilization? And if so, how do we even start to wrap our heads around that? Yeah, that's a, a a tough one, but I'll be honest with you, that's where I'm at. And this framing came about in uh, 2013 when we invited Tim to Christopher to campus. He's better known as Bitter 70. He's the one that uh, was bidding up uh, fossil fuel auctions out west, bidding up the price so it would be more difficult for oil companies to drill out there. He got caught because he's an environmentalist and he was not working for a fossil fuel company. He served time in prison, right? Yeah, he went to prison for, for two years. But he spoke here, and he spoke to my class. And I asked him, you know, what does it look like from, you know, the front on environmental action? Because he's one of the leaders in the environmental movement. And he said, well, you know, this civilization's over. Uh, he, he said, it, it just, what we're negotiating now is if it's going to be a hard landing or, you know, a soft landing. Uh, but with soft landings, we can actually make it better. So he was actually trying to be a little bit hopeful that we can rid ourselves of some of the negative elements of the civilization uh, and hopefully work on them. You know, that's that's the more positive uh, spin on it. But the negative side is that with the climate system, it looks like we don't really have a choice to changing. We're either going to do it or it's going to change us. It'll force us to, to change. And maybe listeners can think about uh, some of the images coming back from a dismantled 
Arctic, you know, permafrost melting, collapsing, creating craters, or maybe New York City subway sub, uh, flooding once again. New Orleans experiencing these mega storms once again. Uh, those will only get worse and more intense, and they're going to force some change. Uh, it could be that we can't live on the coast, let's say. How do we manage retreat going back uh, to accommodate that? And if we don't manage retreat, the climate's going to force us to retreat. So that's the two scenarios. Is one is going to we're going to be forced to remake ourselves, uh, or the other one is that we remake ourselves knowing what we know uh, and try to mitigate those those impacts. And of course, those dynamics that you're describing that may become more present for people in this country on the coast and elsewhere are already happening in many other parts of the world. Uh, we're already seeing migration, uh, significant you know, forced migration of people because of climate change and related issues. And so what's happening elsewhere is a bellwether probably for what we see in the future, I would guess, based on what you're saying. Yeah, uh, I think a really good case study is Syria in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, Syria had a really awful drought uh, for a period of almost a decade, but the third year of drought is the worst. That's the one where you really see uh, people starting to migrate and move. They can uh, kind of cope with one year, two years really difficult, but by the third year, they're, they're ready to move on to do something different. So a lot of farmers migrated to the cities. Um, Assad promised them jobs and they could send back money. That never came about. They formed militias, and then the rest is history. You, you see the collapse of that civilization. So that's what we want to avoid is you know massive disruption, and then you replace it with a brutal dictatorship. So the next thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is practical steps that ordinary people can be thinking about and taking. And I ask this in part with the understanding that not everybody in the world has equal responsibility for the problem to begin with. And certainly some of us bear more responsibility for finding solutions to it. So there's that ethical element too, right? That really matters who you are and what your place is in the global economy and so forth. But with that in mind, what do you think are some of the most urgent things that we all need to be doing right now in order to meet the kinds of challenges that you're describing? Yeah, very good question. Uh, I think if you have an idea, you should pursue it, especially if you're willing to see it through. So whenever students or anybody asks me the, this question, uh, and you have an idea, let's say, John, you, you came to me and you thought, well, I, I want to do this. It's like, do it. Do it. And if it works, it'll catch on and it'll be replicated elsewhere. And we need now 7.8 billion ideas. Every single person on the planet needs to start walking in a, in a different direction. So I, I always encourage anybody, if they have an idea, to, to go ahead with it. But uh, I do hear a lot about, let's say, recycling or composting. Now, those, of course, are good things, but they're not going to get as near as we're not going to get close to how far we have to go. Uh, so I would encourage everybody to think about where most of our greenhouse gases come from. And it's mainly electricity and heat and transportation here in the richer countries. And those are the ones we have to go first and we have to change. Because yes, the, we created the problem. Uh, there are probably a third of humanity um, didn't cause the problem. They're suffering the repercussions. 
Uh, and a lot of people around the planet are already living a lifestyle that sequesters more carbon dioxide than emits. Uh, especially, I think of especially subsistence uh, hunters up in the Arctic that I study. You know, they get their food off the land and their local economy is vibrant and strong. Their food miles uh, are generally low, although they do import some outside stuff. So there are some models of you know, really good sustainable societies that are out there, and those should be replicated as well. But to have a campus campaign where everybody gets really jazzed about more composting or, you know, switching to plastics, that's great. But turn that energy toward that power plant that sits in the middle of our campus. You know, that's the big elephant in the room. That's the thing that needs to go and be switched over to something different. I would encourage everybody to do what you feel you can do and what you have passion for. But first, you know, kind of step back and think about where you would get the biggest bang for the buck. Uh, if you're going to devote, let's say, the next 10 years to something, you know, focus on something big and something that will have a bigger impact. If I can just follow up quickly on that, obviously, to go at those larger systems requires political will and political mobilization on the part of ordinary people. What are you seeing right now around us in that regard? Do you see signs that we may be reaching a point or heading toward a point where we're going to have more of a critical mass of people ready to exert political will? Uh, I do, actually. I think at the international level, virtually every sane government has delivered um, a plan uh, to cut emissions, and, and a lot of them get down to negative emissions after uh, mid-century. That's a, a big leap forward. They have the plans, but they haven't actually done them yet, but at least they have the plans. So I think we've been successful in the environmental movement or climate change movement in elevating this expectation of government, that this is now part of standard operating procedure and at least plan for a different future. I think that's in there and that's a little bit hopeful. I think in our own country, uh, President Biden also has a good plan. He also has a, a ton of money that he wants to push through Congress to, to fund it. So I think right now uh, we need to hold his feet to the fire. We need to make sure that happens. That's where the political pressure should come. But I'm also telling students to get ready because they're going to be graduating into an economy that may be supported by the stimulus package. And we need climate change planners. You know, go into planning, you know, be, if you're interested in some engineering, uh, go into seawalls, you know, some of the things that are going to be really important in the future, go into transportation planning, get into renewable energy, man, ton jobs uh, galore. So I, I think what I'm trying to say, John, is that I think there is an emergence of something a little bit different that you can actually start working in now instead of pushing for that different sector or a different way of, of running our economy. But we have to be smart too, right? Because it can be, we can go backward very quickly. You know, the previous president took us way back and damaged this country in so many different ways. Uh, and stalled really, he really wasn't smart enough to dismantle the Paris Agreement or any climate action. But, you know, that could happen here as well if we're not vigilant. So be politically active, certainly, to get some leaders in there that will actually do something. 
and then get ready for that that those new jobs. That's that's the way I'm advising uh, students right now. I say all that, and that's the more hopeful side of me. The pessimist listens to Joe Biden. He was just down in Louisiana after Hurricane Ida, and he said, "We need to get these oil refineries back and running." You know, as a first priority. Now, I know if there's anybody listening from Louisiana, you you want the electricity to come back. Uh, I'm not saying that, but you can see how dependent we are on fossil fuels for our basic operations and our basic needs at this point. And we need to transition very, very quickly. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a, a kind of a news media question here, as we're a media organization here at Weave News. So the role of news media in all of this, a lot of critics have been talking about this for years, pointing out the inadequacy of the climate change coverage, the general lack of coverage. And then when it is covered, it's covered in ways that are quite superficial or maybe locked within a Washington two-party debate format and so forth. So I'm wondering, as someone who studies this and has been very involved in the science of it and advocacy work as well, how can this coverage be improved in order to meet the moment? And is there anything that we can all do to try to push to get that coverage improved? Yeah, that that definitely is true. Uh, So what we need from independent outlets like you is a really strong vision of an alternative economy, an alternative political system. Come up with the solutions for these social systems that are keeping us from really solving this problem. Uh, And if you have a vision of that and a way to communicate that, that, in my opinion, would be a really strong role. I think the independent news media has a, a role that you've always upheld, and I think that role needs to still be played. But having said that, the liberal news media now is covering climate change much more. Uh, and sometimes very good exposés, even like CNN, Washington Post, New York Times, they're focusing, zeroing in on a particular impact, as I call them, like the Colorado River drying up and all the implications around that. Uh, Washington Post has done the same thing. New York Times has a whole series on climate change, especially in some communities around the world that uh, did not contribute to the problem, but they're becoming the, the victims of climate change. So they're highlighting them as well. But I would say, you know, it, goes, it just goes so far. You know, at, at a time when we need radical change, the liberal media does not go far enough uh, to offer that, that different vision of some system that is different than what we have right now. They, they imagine the solutions within the system. Uh, and that that's going to be limited. We need a different vision. It's it's actually easier to critique the current system than to envision something different. The fossil fuel industry wants to transition over to be a plastics industry because they'll still be around and able to use the fossil fuels. Uh, we need you to to say no. You know that's not getting us where we we need to go. They should become the reparation companies that fund and maybe even construct, let's say, seawalls, and they're the ones involved in in uh, manage retreat. Um, they're the ones, you know, planting forests uh, to use their vast wealth and and get us to where we need to go. I mean, that that's a message that I really don't hear anywhere, but. We do have it on the books, and it's part of our legal code that if you pollute, you got to clean it up, uh, and then you have to make whole uh, the harm that you caused. So they should. That would get us a long way there. Mm-hmm. And we we need that's that civilization question again. How do we envision something different? 
Uh, so we need a different definition of what it means to be successful, I guess. Uh, and that that redefining what is success is, is part of what we need to do. Well, that sounds great. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to visit with us today and, and, and share your expertise with us and, and uh, tell us a little bit more about the IP, IPCC report, which is really important. Uh, people should check that out, read as much as they can about it. Um, John Rosales from St. Lawrence University. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, John. On behalf of the team here at Interweaving, thanks for joining us. And a big thank you to John Rosales for sharing his insights on the show today. For links to more information related to today's episode, please check out the Interweaving podcast page at weavenews.org. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We'll be back soon with another episode of Interweaving. Interweaving is a production of Weave News, weaving the world together one underreported story at a time. Our engineer is Terry Dubray, and our theme music is provided by Bee Children. For more exciting grassroots media content, find us online at weavenews.org or on social media at weavenews. There you can find out how you can support us or join us in our work. Thanks for listening, and join us next time for another episode of Interweaving. Interweaving.